Welcome to the Intentifiers podcast. I'm your host, Jody Rye, bringing to you stories of intent from folks looking for more humanity in their workplaces through the lens of intentionality. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome, Roy. Thank you for being here. Of course. Yes, yeah, so am I. Um, I wanted to, uh, before we sort of dive into your story of intent, I'd love for you to share with the audience some slices of uh, of you and who you are and, and what you do. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, you know, yeah, my, I mean, obviously my name is uh, Roy Campbell. I'm, uh, I live here in uh, Surrey, British Columbia, outside uh, of Vancouver. I've been in Canada now for 27, nearly 28 years. And I work as a youth worker in the school district, and uh, I've been a youth worker now for, ooh, my goodness me, 26 years, I think. Mm-hmm. So I've worked in youth uh, detention uh, programs, I've worked in drug and alcohol treatment programs, uh, residential programs for youth, and now I'm working in the school system with high, at-risk youth, and I run an after-school program mm-hmm. uh, for kids, um, just mentoring young men who, uh, who have a, a lot of struggles in their lives. I have two beautiful daughters. They're 22 and 24. And uh, yeah, and that's what I do. Thank you for sharing that. So your story of intent, um, you and I had chatted uh, a little bit about what you might be sharing. And, and, and there was this idea around perseverance and sharing some life experiences around that concept and how that links in terms of where, where you've been and where you're at now. So where would you like to start in terms of that? I guess at the beginning, you know, <laughs> as a young man, as a, <laughs> you know, I grew up in the UK, uh, Manchester, born in Manchester. I was born into a rough part of, of a town, a place called Stolford, uh, just outside of Manchester. And, you know, at five years old, my mother and father they jumped on a cargo ship and we sailed to Jamaica. My father's black Jamaican and my mother's uh, white English. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's from the Ten years now. Was yeah. that in terms of a cargo ship? Do you do you actually mean like a a real cargo ship? Oh, absolutely. You know, we and, <laughs> we actually got on a cargo ship. Well, yeah, a okay, real one. A, a real, real one. one. And so, was was either your father or your mother with were they um in like work working or workers or how did it be that it was a cargo ship that 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 took you to Jamaica? <laughs> you gotta realize. You gotta realize that I'm 59 years old. Man. <laughs> you know, so back. Then, did in the 60s, you know, not everybody had the money to jump on a plane. Jumping on a plane was expensive, so a cheap way to travel and to be an adventurous was to jump on a cargo ship. So you, you take all your belongings with you. We actually shipped a, a car over to Jamaica, too. So that was very rare. So it was actually a cargo ship that only took a few bombs. And we oh. were one of a couple of bombs on that cargo ship, yeah. Very so, cool. Yeah, we were, we were down next to the engine room, you know, <laughs> for six weeks. For six, wow, for six weeks. Wow. And so then, and it was 10 years in Jamaica. And so how old were you then? Like, what was the age? Yeah, well, that's when I was about five years old. And, you know, and it was under 10 years, but, you know, uh, give or take. And it was 10 years or roughly uh, living in, uh, in Montego Bay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. And, and then... And so from Jamaica, then um, you you left and went where? Okay, so uh, what happened after that, uh, you know, uh, roughly 10 years, we jumped, we jumped back into a cargo ship and uh, my mother took my sister and I, my father stayed in Jamaica to take care of the business. Then we sailed back from Jamaica 
that the week the week sailing cargo ship to let's back to England. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And then we talk about perseverance. Um, you know, one six weeks next to the engine room. So, so one talk about perseverance. Um, I'm curious about. <laughs> I'm curious about the traveling. Like that's that's an extraordinary childhood to be doing that much traveling. Um, and do you remember feelings of you know resiliency or perseverance that was required um, of you, or that you possibly saw role modeled of your mom, um, given all these amazing sort of adventures that you were on as a child? You know, I've I, I witnessed my parents uh, deal with adversity, uh, and you know, uh, and their resilience just to you know, first of all, you have to understand that my, my father is a black man, you know, living in a white country, uh, i.e., the uh, the UK, and you know, they got married in the late 50s. And you just didn't put that back in those days, you know, and to be ostracized in the white community because, um, you know, my father's black and, and she married a, a black man. So just to see them, how they handle themselves, mm. you know, uh, they built a successful nightclub and restaurant and, you know, they were able to handle the uh, harassment by maybe, the, you know, the police and um, and the gang and, and, and remain very caring and compassionate people. You know, take care of uh, the um, the unfortunate. You know, the people who are struggling in the neighborhood, and sometimes they had no money. Mm. And you know, when we arrived back to the UK, uh, my father set up a business again with nothing, zero in his pocket. You know, where as a teenager, I had to work every Saturday painting the business, and as they made it work, and they found a way, an honest way of making a living. And that was the perseverance that they taught me, you know, mm-hmm. and not to quit and give up. And it was always a way of getting through whatever tough times you've got. So they modeled that to me. Yeah, that's amazing. And so when you when you think about, you know, the next stages of your life, you said you were back at the UK and, and, and your father had, had built a business. Um, what was happening for you then when you were in the UK, whether it be from, you must have still been school aged at some um, at that point still? Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, if I'm correct, uh, maybe 14-ish, 14 years old. Okay. We arrived back into we arrived back into Manchester. And we actually, you know, I, I told a story last night when I was giving a, a presentation about, uh, you know, uh, racism. And, and we actually moved into a, supposed to be a nice area, neighborhood. And we were all, the only black family in, the, in that neighborhood, in that street. And um, I described it, we were kind of like the cause you know, in, in the white neighborhood, <laughs> and uh, and um, the, the, the whole street actually had a petition. Oh. You know, everybody signed it how I, to get the black family out. You know, mm. and um, and that was kind of hard for my family, but they stood the ground, and they eventually moved from there to another community where I was born, Salford. Salford is extremely tough, extremely tough, mm. and um, I. I I went to school there, and I was one of, you know, maybe three or four kids of color, and the rest of the kids, maybe over a thousand kids, were basically not basically, but were white. And um, as a kid, you know, you, uh, you every day when school was finished, you would either find something to do after school, mm-hmm. so you didn't have to leave with the crowd, because if you left with the crowd, then you end up getting beat up. And, uh, and I'm talking about gang meetings now where, you know, a swarm of people just lay boot into your head and kick you and stamp you and call you all kinds of, you know, uh, racial slurs. Um, or you just ran. You know, the bell went. You were the first one to run home because if the gangs caught you, they would beat you hard wow. every day, every day. And 
so how did that, what it sounds like survival. And so uh, how, how, how did that happen for you in terms of um, th that experience in school? Um, how did you survive? How did, how did you work through, um, you know, maybe the constant fear, you know, like you said, you know, booting it out of school so you don't get beat, um, knowing that you were a minority um, and how folks felt based on that, based on the color of your skin. So how did you, how did you persevere? Yeah, you, you know what you did is, you know, in a normal uh, situation, a kid would go home and tell the parents, mm -hmm. or the parents would see the bruises, the black eyes, and, you know, they would say, what happened to you? And, you know, in my, in my case, my, my dad would say, fight back. And, you know, I, I didn't really have anybody really to go to and explain the situation. I wasn't connected with school. You definitely didn't connect with the police in the community. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, it was just, you know, take a beating or learn to fight. I never had a fight until I was about 14 years old. Mm. In Jamaica, I didn't fight, you know. Um, and so I'd take the severe beatings, and um, and then eventually it, um, it would either be a part of what was going on and or, or you know, eventually, uh, you know, basically get killed, you know. And I had a really good friend. His name was Brian, and uh, we connected really well. And one day I, I joined this uh, group of kids. They weren't a gang, but I joined a group of kids who used to beat me. And um, I had to end up turning on my friend and calling really uh, homophobic slurs and um, just so I could be a, just like them mm. and feel safe. And saw Brian about maybe 15, 16 years later, and, and he never forgot the things I called him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, and it's almost like, you know, you have you have no choice. I mean, like your father said to you, you defend yourself. So you either beat them or you get beat because I'm, I'm sure you're not going to always win every fight. Um, and then, yeah. you know, what's that saying that they'll say sometimes if you can't beat them, join them. And so that was survival for you in terms of, you know, in terms of options, it sounds like. Well, it was survival, you know, and, you know, in England, you, you finish school when you're 16 years old, uh, not like. Over here in Canada, you graduate when you when you're uh, 18. But for us, we finished at 16. So you know, uh, I was skipping school towards the end of the school year, and I was hanging out with a bunch of guys who were, you know, selling drugs. And I started hanging out with them, sneaking out of the house. And you know, I was working in a nightclub when I was 16 years old, mm -hmm. and um, and going to school. That just became part of the cycle of getting caught up with these guys who were, you know, in the mid 20s who were not doing, you know, good stuff around. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I'm curious about then from 16 and onwards, what transpired, you know, sort of after high school for you? Uh, yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, after high school, I was, uh, I, you know, I was back and forth. I was, I was working a couple of jobs and I was still hanging out with these guys. And, you know, I was, I think I was 18, from 16 to 18, I was now at uh, five criminal convictions against me for um, aggressive behavior. Um, I had one for um, uh, breaking an entry mm. and um, minor breaking an entry. And that was just not me because that's not how my parents raised me. And I actually uh, did a few weeks in um, a youth detention. And lucky enough, you know, my parents didn't know about this because I was living by myself by, by then. So I wasn't accountable to them in any way. And so I, that would actually break, break my mother's heart to know that kind of stuff. And so just before, and I said it on my TEDx, just before I was uh, 18, what happens when you're 18 now, you're classified as an adult. Yeah. You know, I was a, I was a, a minor youth, uh, youth offender. And so anything after 18, now you go to the, um, you know, the adult jail. And, you know, my 
my father took me to to see his mechanic. Now, maybe my father set this up and he uh, he actually took me. Uh, he told me he was taking me somewhere else, but I think he set it up. But he took me to see his mechanic, and then his mechanic spoke to me. He was a big black Jamaican guy, about maybe seven foot twenty four. He was huge, 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 and kind of very intimidating. But you know what? He was very gentle. Mm. And my dad went up to the bar for a drink, and I hung out for about one hour with this one mechanic, and he was showing me how to fix the car. And that's the first time anybody in my life has really spent any time with me um, talking like that. My, my dad and I didn't have a great relationship, but mm. this mechanic, uh, he just spent a little bit of time, and he told me I got to change my life, you know. And I just remember, not at that moment, but I walked away, but afterwards I remember him being so gentle and connecting with me and giving me advice and, wow. And I said, yeah, I got to make a, I got to change my life. And I ended up becoming a mechanic just like him. Wow, yeah. no kidding. That was one hour, one inter- one interaction with one hour, one stranger. Wow. You know, when you talk about human, yeah. con- you talk about human connections and, you know, I've, I've become obsessed with them and, and even intent. You know, the, the gentleman that you speak of, you know, I, I wonder what was happening in his mind and in his heart as he was speaking to you, obviously coming from a place of love. Who would have thought that that one hour conversation sort of almost pivoted possibly a life that you were going down um, and, it, and it completely changed it? Would that, absolutely. Yeah. Would that be that would be fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? I've always said it. There's not too much difference between a positive connection and a negative connection. A human connection is a human connection. Mm. Whether it be, you know, whether it be me as a youth worker, uh, who I, I love and care for my kids, I don't, I don't care what if they're in a gang or the a straight good student. I do not care. And but if the gangs have a connection with a kid, there's not much difference between a connection and a positive in, in a positive home life, because everybody wants to feel welcome. Mm. And if a kid doesn't have a connection at home, they're gonna feel that connection with a gang and fill that void. You know, yeah. this is why it's so important for as parents, as caregivers, is that we make our kids feel loved and cared for. Mm-hmm. Because most of those gangbangers out there, I, I, I can't say constant most of them, but a lot of them are just good, good, good kids. And just situation. I, I really love the way you said that in terms of, you know, a, a negative or positive situation and or even human connection. It's almost when you when you dig really deep in terms of what our human needs are, you know, and, and you really you, you said it so eloquently at the end of the day, um, regardless of, 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 of color or gender or whatever the case might be, the human need of connection is I don't think anyone can argue with that. And so, like you say, if if it's not being provided by your nucleus, you know, by your 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 family, you know, you see it firsthand where children and or adults are going to get it elsewhere and in a negative uh, environment or situation. But if they're getting that positive reinforcement, that that connection that they're longing for, there's no stopping, you know, the, the situations that they're going to be in then, like you say, like they'll, they'll be in that gang or they'll be in negative situations only because they now have a sense of belonging. I wonder if that's a scary place for a lot of these, a lot of these kids that you're working with. You know, many years ago, I, I worked in um, uh, a youth detention, um, I think it was a residential treatment program. And we had this one kid and he was caught up in some crazy stuff. And, you know, he had, you know, he was a big guy and he had this facade and, you know, during the day he would, you know, he would say all these, give all profanity and everything and, you know, in your face. 
And at night time, you would hear him cry in his, pillow, in, his, in his pillow. And one day I asked him, I asked him, why are you crying? And he says, I wasn't crying. I said, yes, you were. Why are you crying? And he just explained to me that he's lost. He doesn't know how to get out of where he is. Mm-hmm. And he started crying to me during the daytime. And he was a big shot kind of, you know, wannabe. And um, he cried and cried and cried. A lot of these guys just lost, mm-hmm. you know. And when, because I cried in front of my students, I don't mind shedding the tears. <laughs> and, you know, some of these kids, man, are so lost and, they're looking for a mentor, a good role model in their life. The home lives are so messed up. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. Well, it's amazing. The work that you're doing, I, I can't even, you know, imagine the impact. You know, you, you have such a strong desire to help um, others and help youth based on a lot, of, I would say, on, on your own life experience. And the word mentor, you know, as you were describing the mechanic that you had met, that was one of the first things that came to my mind is that, in one hour, his mentorship role changed your life and, and, and motivated you and inspired you to, to think differently. And the fact that you're able to provide that gift now um, to youth here in the Lower Mainland, I think is just, it's a gift. It really is. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing, just going back a little bit to, you're now a mechanic. And um, from what, so you were a mechanic still in the UK. And what happened as you got a little bit older then? And, and where, like, where did life take you a, a, after that? Okay, so I, um, at that time, I, I went into, I did my apprenticeship, and I took up a sport called rugby league. Mm. And it's, um, you've seen rugby on TV, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and I started playing, I, I started playing amateur rugby league uh, in the UK. Uh, it was kind of an outlet for me. I, I really hated sport. I mean, I grew up in Jamaica, track and field. I'm running, I was fat. And to run from some of the gangs, you had to be fat. <laughs> and so, you know, and I guess the Jamaican blood, uh, you know, you uh, same Bolt, uh, you know. Um, and I started playing rugby. And I, I, you know, I just wrote a story about this. And I played for a really bad amateur team. And I hate losing. And they lost every game, every game in that one season. So I went out and, uh, you know, I uh, somebody invited me to a um, to come and play for the top team amateur team. So I played for the top amateur team in the neighborhood in the uh, in the area, and we won everything, everything. We never lost a game. And then um, the last game of the season, uh, a professional team, one of the top teams called Warrington, invited me to come and uh, come and try out for them in um, in a, to be a professional rugby player. And um, I went there to the trials and. Um, I sat on the bench, and I was the first, the third, fourth person to go on the field to try out during the game. And uh, time, the clock was ticking down, and I didn't think I was going to get on the field in time. I was sitting there on the bench, and I had one person to go on the field uh, before me, and I, I persevered and I tested the and bothered the coach. I said, "Coach, put me on, put me on, come on, put me on now." And the coach got so sick and tired of me that he missed the guy before me who was supposed to go on, and he put me on. And I played so well, and um, and uh, I, after that, I signed a professional contract. No way. Yeah. That's so cool. And the guy who didn't go on, the guy who was number third, who should have went on before me, who just sat there being quiet, uh, he never got a contract. <laughs> and um, so that's a story about persistence. Yeah, no kidding, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. <clears throat> so I played for uh, three seasons, three years. 
uh, I was trying to build my way up into the team. It's very uh, competitive. So in the second year, I got a contract to play in New Zealand, in Auckland, New Zealand, the first English player to play in Auckland, New Zealand rugby league. And I played over there for six months. Loved it, loved it. And then after that season, I came straight back, got off the plane and started playing with no rest. Um, tragedy uh, struck at the end of the third season. Hmm. What happened? And um, it was the last game of the season. I was running with the ball, and I didn't notice the guy behind me. And he tackled me, and I went head first into the ground. And two players followed that, and altogether three of them landed on top of me and crushed my neck and broke my neck in three points. Oh, my goodness. And I mean, I know rugby is... Um there is tackling and stuff, but for something like that to happen, that that's not a common occurrence, is it? That 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 would that there you'd have that a player would have a neck injury. Uh, it's extremely rare. Yeah. It's extremely rare. You know, you break your leg, break your arm, break your your nose or whatever fingers, but not a broken neck. So I was knocked out for about a minute, and then I came around, and we we thought everything was fine, and then I got up. And my left side wasn't working properly. My left leg, I remember it just being kind of like a dead leg. It wasn't lifting off the ground. Mm. And the game went on. Someone passed the ball and I wasn't able to move my left arm. And uh, and I collapsed to the ground again. They took me to hospital and they diagnosed me with a, uh, with a, a triple uh, fracture coming down my, down my neck. Yeah. Oh. And so what was that like in terms of healing and... and- you know, until you talk about perseverance, I mean, you know, if you could just please share, what was that like, and how did you, how did you work through that? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, oh my goodness, I haven't talked about this for a while. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> you're digging deep now. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness me, um, you know, uh, they took me to hospital, and um, they, they did a bone graft from my, from my hip, and they wired up my neck, so one, two, and three, the vertebrae, one, two, and three are wired together and fused together with uh, bone graft. So uh, I laid there for, on the bed, and when I woke up, uh, I both screwed deep into my head, and attached to that with a clamp, with a cable going down the back of the bed with uh, weights on top of it. Uh, they strapped my body to the bed so my body wouldn't uh, move, and um, I had the tubes inside of me, and um, I wasn't able to move for weeks and weeks and weeks. And now you can imagine I'm ADHD. I've never sat still in my life. And now I have to lay still for weeks and weeks um, with screws and bolts inside my head. And, you know, the nurses, they have to feed you and clean you and, you know, bathe you. And it was was devastating. It was devastating. Yeah, I can't Um, can't even imagine, you know, when you're, we talk about physical physical, um, trauma or injury. Um, but also you talked about, you know, somebody who can't sit still or lots of energy. I mean, that comes, comes across just in, in how you speak. Um, you know, the, the mental toll must have also been quite difficult. Yeah, I eventually came out of hospital and, um, you know, obviously I've got the post-traumatic, you know, uh, that's going on, mm-hmm. and all the trauma. And um, I never gave up. I always thought I would come back and play again. I, I never quit. I never gave up. I said, you know what, it would be fine. And, you know, I had this uh, thing in my head that, you know, my career is not over. and You know, my club never gave up. Um, yeah, they never gave up my contract anyway at first. And so I still had a professional contract with them. And then eight months later, they told me I had to come back in for another operation. And, that, you know, that one. 
work and that's when the devastation I walked around with a halo uh, a neck brace and um, for all that time and um, I had another operation and in hospital again for weeks and I went home and um, and I really went into a, a suicidal depression um, I locked myself away for um, for nearly I don't know nine ten months mm-hmm. and um, yeah and uh, I tried I last year lost count how many times I really try to end my life. Uh, I attempted so many times, uh, and yeah. Well, and yeah. It, it obviously wasn't your time. So how how did you um, how did you work through that at the end of the day? You know, that's a long time, Roy, in terms of going through that that type of mental anguish and almost despair. Right? Someone was smiling down on you, or some. It wasn't your time. You know, sort of. They say that in my culture, and so. What 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 got you through your now past attempts to to end your life? Mm-hmm. How did you work through that? I don't think I actually worked through. It. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a, any kind of a plan. The only plan I had was to kind of like, you know, this mm-hmm. is enough. You know, I put on about I don't know sixty pounds. That you know, I was trying to swallow the same pills I tried to swallow maybe a few months ago. I was, you know, eating moldy food out my fridge and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I think it was kind of like a. Uh, you know, a car run out of gas, you know, mm-hmm. um, you just can't go any further, you're broken. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're broken, you're broken. And people don't get it around you when, you, when you're in a deep depression. And for me, is I remember that that day, something happened. It was like a light switch that went on. <laughs> I was sitting there in my apartment in Manchester, and the drapes, the curtains were closed all that time. I'd never opened, I'd never cleaned my apartment in eight, nine months. a lot, eh? Like you, you, you sometimes um, go so deep into your own world um, as you were, you know, shutting everything out. And the minute those drapes opened and you allowed the world back in, um, it, it allows for some perspective, as you said, you know, it, it allowed for human connection um, and almost a, a way for you to start to heal. So how, how is it that you ended up in, in BC? Okay. I was having more complications. I just now finished um, uh, uh, certification in um, sports and recreational coaching. And then I get a phone call from my doctor saying that things are not good. You've got to come back 
leaving that phone call and I went to the local travel agent. We didn't have computers back then. <laughs> and, uh, and I booked a ticket as says I'm leaving. And my intentions was to backpack and hitchhike, hitchhike around the world. So the, there was, there, was there a safe, was there a safety concern or issue for why you're, why the doctor wanted you to come back? Was it another surgery yeah. that they wanted you to have? Yeah. That was the, uh, the inclination that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe the fusion, the bone grafts, uh, and my neck, uh, not fused, just to feel that same way as the first time. And I said, nope, I don't care. I'm leaving. <laughs> and, uh, I was in Jamaica and, um, I met. Uh, my ex-wife, she was there on vacation from Winnipeg. Ah. And uh, I, you know, I hooked up with her and she went back to Winnipeg and I said, well, I'll come up and see you. I'll hitchhike from Miami to Winnipeg. And um, that's what I did. Wow. And yeah, and I loved Winnipeg summer. Did uh, <laughs> I was going to say you did. And I love how your caveat was, well, in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, that's so amazing. I I arrived into Winnipeg and I loved it. I loved the kids, the Canadians. I loved how friendly uh, the people were, and I was just like, "Wow, I'm so." And so I stayed in Winnipeg. Uh, I rented an apartment. I stayed in Winnipeg for a few months, hmm. and then I had complications for my neck again, and I had to go back to the UK and have that taken care of. Yeah. Wow. And then after the UK, uh, you ended up in BC. No. Uh, my ex came to the UK and I had a Volkswagen camper and I drove that all through Europe. We drove it through the Sahara Desert, close to uh, Algeria. And from there, we came back to Manchester and we got married and up to uh, Vancouver after that, 27 years ago. Yeah. 27 years ago. And so since then, Vancouver has been home. Absolutely. It will always be my home. Always. Yeah. yeah. I love it. It's amazing how much life experience you've had especially around the traveling that's that, that's absolutely amazing and i'm curious if you could speak to based on not just your travels but your overall life experiences what led you to be doing the work that you're doing now you know it's it's some of the tough times i went through as a kid first of all i, I came from a good parent a good home mm. you know my parents were very um very caring and giving to their community very good people honest people you know, I, I went off track and, you know, I got caught up in some things that I didn't have to get caught up in. My relationship with my dad wasn't the best, but wasn't the worst. Hmm. And for me, is I got caught up in the wrong things and, and just started doing some crazy stuff. Well, you know, the kids I work with, is they're not bad kids. They're really not bad kids. You bring me the toughest gangbanger, put him in front of me, and I will show. When I tell my kids, when I, when I meet them, when we go for coffee or... You know, uh, or in my office, I said, hey, if I disrespect you, this is what I tell them. If I disrespect you, please forgive me. I apologize and, and, and hold me accountable for it. And, but I'm going to hold you accountable if you're disrespectful, if you're disrespectful to me. Mm. So we, I, I want to come at a level where I can work with you and help you and show you my honest heart. And a lot of these kids don't have trust in anybody. Mm. And um, I want to come across where to show you know what, I'm here for you if you need me. And a lot of kids just need somebody to talk, talk to, you know. Um, yeah, I get phone calls from my, I carry a phone uh, for my job and I get calls all the time. Hey, Roy, can I meet me for coffee? It's not good. You know, absolutely. Mm. And uh, our kids are struggling just for that connection with somebody who cares about them, mm. really. Yeah. yeah, and as you say, like, you know, depending on what's happening at home, um if there isn't necessarily someone to speak to or if the if trust you know doesn't exist like you say the outreach 
might be seem might seem limited for a lot of out of the youth that you're working with. And so how do youth connect with someone like you? Like where would they go if they didn't have anyone to speak to? You know, it, it's uh, it's uh, in the school, you know, and in, in the district in Surrey or in Delta. I mean, you know, in Vancouver and so on. I mean, they can go straight to the counselor. And uh, you know, most counselors are trusting, caring, empathetic. Um, that's why they do the job. And if they can ask them for, hey, are there any resources in our community uh, that can help us? You know, for me, is there are youth workers in the schools, in, especially in Delta. And we have so many. And if they just go to the youth workers and say, hey, I need some help, you can call the, you know, the youth helpline and just say, you know, I'm going through some crisis right now. Do you have any recommendations in your community right. uh, that can help? And so just get on the phone, get on the website, look for youth programs, youth help, you know, and, uh, and there's, there's, there are programs out there. Mm. You know, we have the Boys and Girls Club in Delta that are doing a great job. They can connect there as well. But definitely in schools, they have youth workers and they have counselors. And they've got counselors. Yeah, of course. I'm wondering, based on uh, the climate that the world is in, you know, first and foremost, there's we have a pandemic. And in North America, in this case, in the U.S., the the tragedies that have occurred for years around Black oppression and, and racism, I'm wondering based on what's happening with both the pandemic and as well as with what's happening in the U.S., how is that equated to the work that you're doing with youth? Are you seeing anything come up? Is there anything that you'd want to share to say, here's what's happening based on the work that you're doing, or or even your own opinion in terms of how that has, has impacted um, who you are and, and what you're doing? You know, it's interesting how we have the pandemic and we have the uh, protests. Uh, around race equality and what happened to uh, George Floyd. And that, in a sense, is a perfect storm. Mm. Uh, you know, our youth here, from my experience, are struggling. Mental health, the issue with mental health was a big thing before, you know, the pandemic and the, the protests. And, and so now our kids, are, they've been isolated for quite a while. And they've lost that connection with people. My mm. job right now is sometimes working from home, calling kids all the time, just keeping that connection. We don't have that connection that we had before. And for some of these kids, they don't have it at home. Now they have even less. And a lot of our kids, are, and this summer is coming up as well. And so they are struggling. They are struggling with their mental health. And whether it be anxiety, whether it be, you know, um, isolation, trauma, post-traumatic stuff going on. So I worry for our kids with their mental health right now. And now you have all the, you know, the protests. And, you know, I know a lot of my kids are actually being a part of the protest. So I worry about their exposure to the, um, to the virus too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my niece who's, um, who just graduated this year, uh, she was, um, the, there was a couple of protests happening in Vancouver and she had gone down in terms of wanting to show support and fighting. And also, you know, my sister saying to her, like, make sure you wear your mask and be careful. And so, you, like you said, it really is a, 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 a tragic, perfect storm, I guess, if you want to describe it that way. Just touching on that there, I mean, you don't have to physically be there in order to make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, we, we need to have, you know, um, the injustice um, to, uh, to Black people, the injustice to Indigenous people that's been going on for, for so long. We don't physically need to be there. Yes, a physical presence is a wonderful thing, but we are also living in a, in a kind of a dangerous time. 
ourselves accountable for, you know, what comes out of our mouth, mm-hmm. how we react to people, hold people accountable for what they're saying. Social media, if people are being racist on social media, say, hey, that's not okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And if we take a personal stand for what is right, that's a stand better than it was yesterday. Yeah. So we don't necessarily always physically need to be there, but just hold ourselves accountable. Because we, it, it, to hold ourselves accountable now is better than, you know, marching and saying, you know, uh, hey, do this, do this, do this, and not doing anything in the end. Yeah. So let's hold ourselves accountable. Let's educate our kids. Let's educate our community, especially on social media. Hold people accountable for their racist stuff that's coming out. And realize that racism is not just black. It's not just white to black. Racism goes all directions. Look mm-hmm. what was happening down. I, I saw some media stuff where an uh, uh, Asian lady was pushed over. So, you know, the indigenous people are having a hard time. So it's going all directions. Yeah. And we're all, if we are doing nothing, we are, we, if we are doing nothing, we are part of the problem. So each one of us has to take personal responsibility. The idea is around holding, holding, holding ourselves first and foremost accountable. You know, oftentimes I'll say, you know, you got to own your own shit. Like at the end of the day, like, you know, wh- you. where are you at with this? And, you know, and my husband has a really good friend and he always says, you know, you can lie to everybody else, but you really can't lie to yourself. And so, you know, when you look Thank at, you. when you look in the mirror, what are you really seeing? And, yeah. and, and also a really great point in terms of safety, um, in terms of what we are able to do um, and having the courage to share your voice. So I appreciate you talking about the, our ability to, to take a stand um, and also the recognition of, of racism uh, and systemic racism impacting um, m- many. I, I just wanted to touch base quickly back on on the point you raised around mental health. And I wanted to just thank you for 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 saying that it's it's a point that I think is really important and i'm so grateful that there's a gentleman like yourself and youth workers that have a pulse and that are really looking at supporting um, our youth in that space um so it's maybe just not even a touch base but just a a thank you because i appreciate you highlighting that piece where would you like to end in terms of final thoughts around um perseverance and 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 things that you'd like the audience to maybe take away it was a very significant moment in my life and when my actually daughter was a part of this, she really didn't know what was going on. And I didn't, you know, the, total, the doctors actually told me I would never run for, I would never run again. And I always have problems. I still have problems on my left side. And for, I don't know, 12 years or so, I didn't do, I didn't even try to run because the doctors told me. But then my daughter, I think she was about four years old, and she told me I was a stay-at-home daddy for eight years. And she said, Daddy, let's run. She just wanted to play in the street. And we ran 50 meters up the street, up the street, and that was a, that was a, the most I ran in all those years because of the injury. And the next week we ran, I ran out of uh, 100 meters, and then six months later, after you know running a little bit further, I ran a half marathon. Who knew it? A year later, I ran a marathon. And since that time, over the last 19 years, I've run, I don't know, 15, 16 marathons, 100 kilometers nonstop. Um, you know, I've run through the seven days through the Sahara Desert, Amazon Jungle, Ironman Triathlon, World Championship. And it all started with that first 50 meters mm-hmm. that that little girl encouraged me to take. And it went on to the World Championships and the World's Toughest Endurance Races. We need people in our steps. And the hardest step, I believe, is taking that first one. And, you know, a lot of us struggle, whether it be in relationships, whether it be mental health uh, addictions. And there are people around to help you 
with that first step. The same way my daughter helped me. And it takes courage sometimes to ask for help. Mm. But if we can take that step and ask for help, it's amazing what we can do. It's amazing what the next step and the next step and the next step way takes you. It's worth taking that chance mm. and accepting help. And that's where my message is. So people who are struggling, whether it be youth, whether it be family, it's not to give up hope. Take a chance. And you'd be amazed at where, where, that, where that step can lead you to. Mm. That's the message I have. So beautifully said and, and so inspiring. I want to thank you so much for sharing um, so much of your life experiences and um, with, with me, you know, we, we sort of just met and um, there was a glow about you uh, that, that I, I was drawn to and um, and now I was lucky enough to have this conversation. So I just wanted to thank you um, from the bottom of my heart for, for being here and being part of this podcast. Thank you very much, Jody. I appreciate it. And uh, my heart goes out to all the people who are struggling uh, through these tough times. And like I said, just hang strong. Don't give up. Support each other. Send out those positive vibes every day to the people around you. Thank you. Love it. Thanks, Roy.